and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the fields of archaeology. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and I'm your host for this episode. On today's episode, we are joined by Kirsten Lopez and Emily Long. Ladies, thanks so much for being here today. Of course. Right. Happy Always to be love having you on, getting the gang back together. And today, we are going to be talking about a somewhat timely topic, which is attempts by the far-right, alt-right, white supremacist, white national groups to co-opt historical figures, historical events for their own benefit. So we're going to be breaking this episode up into three different sections. And for the first section, um, given the huge problem with white nationalism uh, and gun violence in the U.S., we're actually going to talk about the Confederacy and problems with um, kind of this like lost cause mythos that is at its core kind of a racist ideology of the Confederacy. Kirsten or Emily, do either you want to jump in with a summarization of that? So clearly there's, there's a, like Chelsea said, a huge rise in white supremacy, um, neo-Nazis, a lot of issues in the United States, and we won't necessarily get into the the political ramifications of all that by any stretch, but there is this use. Although just to say, there have been more mass shootings in the U.S. this year than there have been days of the year. Think about that. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking and there's so that, oh man, there's so much to say about that. And, but looking at, but we need to talk about why. Yes. All right. So, um, and not just because guns are easy to get access to. Exactly. Um, But we'll have a lot of articles up on the website of the research that we were doing ourselves and an article I was looking at, and it's called The Cost of the the Confederacy. And it's all about how a lot of sites like Confederate monuments, um, plantations that haven't really done much in terms of addressing issues of slavery. It's more of that romanticized, gone with the wind style type of interpretation. And it's these sites, these monuments really play into the idea of the white supremacist imagination that there was a better time. And they almost feed into these hate groups that um, that, that there was a sacred time that when it was better, when that it would have been better if the Civil War had not been lost. And it's this like fantasy world that, well, it's the war of northern aggression. Um, this is how it would have been, <clears throat> excuse me, if we had not lost the war. And it's it's deeply concerning because this fed into the Jim Crow laws of the South. If you want to refer to one of our episodes on the monument situation and whether or not we should take down Confederate monuments, I highly recommend looking into that episode because we talked deeply about that. But it's a lot of these ideas that they're feeding into this absurd idea that there was this better time in the past when the white people were in charge and slaves were happy about their situation. And it's absolutely ridiculous. But these sites, these heritage sites and these uh, monuments play into that delusion, that story, that story. That's way better. (laughs) Um, And so delusion is very good too. And I think it provides unfortunately, a way of saying, um, legitimizing 
yeah. beliefs like we are better and we are um, because we have this history as such of having this background of supremacy and whatnot. And it, it feeds into, like you said, that story and that delusion. And it's deeply troubling. And you can see it from the Reconstruction era after um, the Civil War into the Jim Crow laws, into the um, Civil Rights Movement. And we're seeing an upsurge, I think, in that backlash of having um, a Black president. And now we're ha- it's that under like that undercurrent has always been there of these white supremacist groups. But I think now they're embracing these heritage sites even more and they're now even more vocal and so it's it's deeply concerning that these historical heritage areas are being... Well, one thing that... You, I mean, you talk about making a case for um, a, a history that didn't really exist and a history that could have been better if, if they'd only won. And part of that is trying to restructure the narrative to make it about states' rights. Because thing that, that people have talked yeah. about today mm-hmm. in some other, you know, kind of hot topic issues, whether it be access to guns or abortion rights or legalization of marijuana, you know, what rights do states have to determine what they want to allow their residents mm-hmm. to do versus the national government? And for a, basically since the Civil War was lost... Some might even say during the Civil War, yeah. you know, they talked about how they were fighting for states' rights. And one of the most common kind of pushbacks, if you say, oh, well, the Civil War was about slavery, people will be like, oh, no, 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 no. Civil War was about states' rights. But the state right that the Civil War was about was the states' rights to allow their citizens to have slaves. <laughs> That's what it's like. Sure. It was about states' rights mm-hmm. to have slaves. <laughs> like. That's well, and also just, you know, remembering that, you know, the U.S. as it exists today was not the first draft of the U.S. The Constitution was written many years after the Declaration of Independence. It's because there was a previous government in that to what we have now. And that's not often taught um, in that we, you know. The very first draft was a confederation of states that mm-hmm. were independent, and it did not work, like, that were fully independent. So it was like an EU, I guess, of fledgling colonial um, pieces. But it's not to say that, you know, getting into the argument of states' rights versus federal whatever, but if we are to work as a country – there are certain things that you have to have that everyone's working together on. And if we are looking at in our constitution as human rights and the bill of rights specifically, that people are always like, you know, you hear the same people that get into discussions on states' rights often hold the constitution in a almost religious as a religious document thou that shalt it's like not cross. thou shalt not cross this no so well it's made to be malleable one but if you're looking at that document and you're ignoring the bill of rights and the amendments that were made like i mean the first 10 amendments you know, were made basically at the same time that the constitution was made you know yeah um, it so was. You definitely can't look at them as, yeah. as separate documents. That's a good point. And it's a, it's so problematic then looking at this document in a way that it's like, oh, we were meant to have like it, 
pushing other people's rights above another. And it's like, no, they're, they're, we have amendments for a yeah. reason. Yeah. It's like, oh, look, now women can vote. You know, it's like <laughs> the Constitution like has changed. You know, and it will that's keep a good changing. example. And then they're like, no, no, let's not do that. So that was undone. Like, it's, it's made to be man- malleable because the as one would say, the forefathers knew that society changes and that we can change the constitution slightly to sort of bring it up to our moral code, because that's what they did. Even in the span of, you know, 30 years or so that between the founding, the the declaration of independence and finishing writing the, the bill of rights. I mean, it's all within a generation so knowing that it's like these are all things that are being written, it's, it's it's that constant striving for what is it, the pursuit of happiness? Pursuit of happiness, yes. yeah. And I mean, it's also worth noting to um, talk about you know evolution, should I say it, um, a little bit. But you know, species that have survived and thrived in the world have the ability to adapt, and the world changes, and it's just species that have to yeah. adapt it's government it's political parties it's mm-hmm. you know corporations and therefore it's that fear of change that like will no longer have one group in charge of another or have the same right. you know well, ability to say no we're mm-hmm. better than so and so and then that that fear of change i think that we see this weird backlash to being like no there was a better time it's like really <laughs> pretty sure having polio vaccines now and penicillin and whatnot i think you know yeah. the confederate south would have really sucked we would have all yeah. had malaria well, and that died i mean it's interesting to note that like when people talk about like oh wouldn't it be great if we could like go back in time and live somewhere else and see a different part of people do you know who answered that question in the positive like no white people and, and you know they assume that they're going to go back and, like, oh, be I high status and have servants. And, like, the past sucked for, like, 95% of the people who did it. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Um, but it, I think, Emily, you a good point that a lot of this is kind of based on on fear. Um, and I think that there are some people, and I mean, we've seen it in some of the things that politicians or pundits have said, mouthpieces, you know, where they're like, oh, if someone else gets power, what if they treat us? like we've been treating them, you know, which makes it yes. clear that they realize that their behavior is like problematic. But instead of saying, oh, maybe we should just treat people better. And now like, let's cling on to power more because they can only imagine or envision this world where you have the oppressed and the oppressors. They can't imagine a world where people can get along. Right. And that's, that's profoundly sad to me, actually. Yeah. And instead, I mean, it is kind of bringing it back to these, um, confederate sites there are several plantations throughout the south uh, that are being interpreted in terms of showing the brutality and the difficult Mm -hmm. sides of slavery while others kind of hide it and i I find it interesting those who hide it and those who show it um the situation and i think those who hide it that just again plays into these issues and um the southern poverty law center there's a great um quote in an article um that they're working on uh, tracking hate groups and they say they these sites they are treated as sacred by white supremacists and represent what this country should be and what would have been if the civil war hadn't 
not been lost. And so it's a, an imagination and twisting of history in such a way that it's taking these historic sites where digs have been done and it shows, you know, the, um, the slave quarters. There have been archeo- tons of archaeological evidence showing that slavery was bad. And there's tons of historical evidence showing slavery was bad. But it's just, I find it such a, a unique situation here in the United States. And we see this throughout the world. We'll be talking about that later. Taking historic heritage sites and twisting them in a way where people may be visiting them and may not mm-hmm. know enough about the history to ask questions. Because yeah. you know, everybody can necessarily, if they're on vacation and they're visiting one of these plantations, say, yeah. wait, that doesn't sound right. Or wait, isn't there more to this story? And it just plays into that like reimagining of the South that very much worries me um, in terms of the rise of white supremacy that we see in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's yeah. worth noting that it's not just American citizens, though. I remember there was a tweet that went viral a week, a week and a half ago, that was, um, you know, a, a screenshot of a Yelp review for a plantation in the South. And it was someone who'd come you know, from Europe and talked about they didn't fly. I don't know if they were from Europe. They talked about they didn't fly, you know, seven hours, eight hours. But like, if you're in the Southern U.S., like, Canada, Latin America, Europe, like if you start looking at the kind of time you have to spend on a plane, but I didn't, I didn't go on this long trip yeah, um, to come see a plantation to be lectured about how like evil white people and like I'm white also like maybe Europe. Um, right. But like my ancestors never did this and I don't want to hear about it. I just wanted to like see a pretty location and gave this, this site a really, really bad review because they were talking about the brutal realities of slavery that occurred on a plantation that like, is a architecturally beautiful house and like has a nice landscape, but these horrors occurred there and you need to be aware of them. And the fact that having this architecturally, like, you know, very beautiful Mm -hmm. house was only made possible because this family Mm -hmm. had all of this wealth because they owned human beings and treated them like crap. Um, And and there are people who just don't want to hear that. And people didn't want to hear that. And it's like, yeah, Yeah. it's like, well then don't visit this place. (laughs) <laughs> right you know anything about <laughs> history deal with it you should know what you're walking yeah. into well and that gets i mean i don't know it's one of these this is one of those topics that i always feel it's like hard. i don't even know where to start with the i mean this is where you really get archaeology is political yeah. by nature oh yeah and we can't play I, out of it it's it's literally no. we can't just be like, no, it's not our yeah. place. No, it, and that's one of the things that I think it's important, and it's good to see um, on the occasions that I see it, are archaeologists doing like public outreach or public archaeology programs that really delve into these tough topics. Or even just, you know, it would be nice to see archaeology on TV or in media that actually portrays reality, like I feel like it once did. Um, Did it? Yeah. On TV? I'm trying to, to think a, of to a minor. I think th- I think one thing that from the 90s, the the early in this probably wasn't. I mean, it's still TV, but um, they did a show on uh, History Channel mm-hmm. in the 90s on Otzi when some of that was first excavated, and I think in the past. Certain programs were less biased, and you didn't have things yeah. like ancient mermaids and ancient aliens. 
aliens and like you know fill in the blank bullshit that tends to draw more public attention than actual archaeology anymore Mm -hmm. like it's actually difficult to find and that gets into you know are people actually understanding or do they really have no idea what the history is and then they go to these heritage sites and it's like do you get what happened here yeah and so it's it's one of those it's difficult for most people i think to parse out truth like reality from something that a type of propaganda that has an agenda so i think it's part of our job not entirely but part of our job as archaeologists is to you know reel in educators and really try and definitely help people understand Mm -hmm. how all this is is reality or not reality definitely Um, and and i think we want to talk a lot more about that in section three for sure yeah Um, yeah and we'll get there and I mean, and it's I, <laughs> just an anecdote in terms of, like, th- these types of heritage sites. My brother and I were visiting a plantation in South Carolina. And I was like, wow, this is going to be fascinating. There was nothing on slavery. The boards, like, there was a, like, interp boards about uh, slave quarters were turned inwards, not outwards. So you had to go around to go find huh. them. And the um, interp staff were talking about the servants and how hard it was for the family after the civil war they lost everything and on and on and my brother out loud my delightful historian brother just went but they own slaves so fuck them and walked away (laughs) and i was like maybe we need to be doing more of that kind of thing as visitors to really ensure a more open interpretation that could be more accurate and showing hey some of us actually want the real story here in terms of kind of accurate interpretations, I think it's also really important that the article you mentioned earlier, the cost of the Confederacy, which was a Smithsonian mm-hmm. institution article. A very good article. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll definitely be linking mm-hmm. to that. Um, one of the things that they mentioned was the yeah. amount of money that had been spent on kind of taxpayer, taxpayer money. money, right? Government money funded for from um, some of it was Katrina relief that went to Confederate monuments and sites, plantations, you know, and in the last decade, it's rounding 40 million dollars like it's it's not an insignificant amount of money and and that in and of itself like is is support like if if the government is giving you money that that is like tacit support tacit Mm -hmm. approval and there doesn't seem to be a lot of oversight for funding agencies to go back Mm -hmm. and go oh you're not actually telling the the truth you know you're talking about slaves being happy when they weren't Right. And that's that's the really problematic. Story. Yeah. And, and one it, of the things that supports I also this found narrative particularly troubling is that a lot of the money often or at least state state money, not national or not federal money, but a lot of state money gets sent to the United Daughters of the Confederacy Fund, which is kind of like the daughters of the American Revolution, but for the Confederacy. And that they're responsible for kind of giving out money to fund mm-hmm. cleaning up confederate uh, graveyards or you know protecting monuments or doing this kind of like preservation work and it's almost a way of trying to like whitewash or like clean up the image of, of what's happening because a lot of white supremacy and misogyny like sees women is not as capable and keepers of, like hearth and home and mm-hmm. that can't really be that threatening but it's also worth noting that like 
white women own slaves too, and their accounts of them being particularly brutal slave owners. You know, and there's a recent book that came out called uh, They Were Her Property, talking about the fact that, you know, like women would often arrange for, you know, female slaves to be raped, hoping that they would get pregnant so that they could have white nurses when they gave birth. And, you know, like, I think that there's also a really important gendered component that we need to take into account, both in terms of like how the past is portrayed mm-hmm. and like who is doing terrible things because it wasn't just men, it wasn't just women, everybody. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of the white supremacist ideology also has women in the backseat as well. And like women in a uh, what they imagined as a better time for women, a hearth and home, like you were saying. It's so it's not only <sighs> white men. It's, in, yeah. It's, there's, yeah. There's so much. There's yeah. so much. And yes. I feel like we could do 10, 20, 100 episodes on this topic and never run out of things to say. But we are at the end of our first 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. Um, so we'll be back right after this short intro to talk some about the far right cities of uh, medievalism and Viking Age history to attempt to justify their um, alternative narrative. Yeah, I'm gonna get real sassy on this one. (laughs) During this break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology blog and see the types of posts we've been putting up over the last two years. We've been discussing many different types of topics from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing, all the way to just random subjects that interest us at this time. You can also see the backlog of episodes, and it's also a way you can contact us about your interest in the episode, and any topics you would like us to cover sometime. Again, thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we have been talking about some of the issues with white supremacists and uh, far-right leaders kind of co-opting the history of the past. So far, we have discussed the Confederacy in the U.S., And in this segment, we're going to go global a little bit and talk about some of the issues with classical Greece and Rome, issues with the Phoenicians, and I'm probably going to sound off a lot about Vikings. So get ready. (laughs) This is going to be awesome. Um, Awesome. (laughs) As many people probably know, if you've seen all of the shootings that have been happening in the U.S. and around the world, and if you haven't, you should read more news. But there are unfortunately a lot of people in the far right who are going in on these, you know, shooting sprees and referencing various different um, classical historical groups in their shootings. Um, the shooting in Christchurch in New Zealand, the shooter made reference to Norse, air quote, uh, religion, because... <laughs> Uh, I don't think that he actually understood what it was, but, you know, his interpretation of it and the interpretation from a lot of the the far right. Uh, and this, unfortunately, is something that's been going on for a couple centuries. You know, we've, we've known about the Greeks and the Romans for a long time. Um, and for a long time, their kind of like art aesthetic has been looked at as being classical and beautiful and the best thing in the world and minimalist and used to support the fact that they like white people because they have white statues, but I know Emily, you really wanted to go off on this, so I'm going to stop talking and let you jump in before I just rant for my list about Vikings. Oh, 
<laughs> oh, I'm so excited about this. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts. All right. So, um, so this is yeah, like Chelsea was saying, this was a major issue in the United States and worldwide, where um, neo Nazis and white supremacists use Greek and Roman history as an idea of whiteness. But if you look at any of the um, mummy uh, paintings um, uh, that we see in classical Roman history, if you look at pretty much anything, there was a variety of color in, in Greek and the Greek and Roman world. Um, the cl- world of classical antiquity, race did not mean what it does today. And there wasn't this idea of like white purity. And the idea that this white purity is coming from white marble statues when they're in fact there's tons of evidence that the statues and the parthenon and all of the uh, pretty much any marble architecture would have been painted so not only and straight up garish ugly very i mean i I didn't (laughs) think i mean it looks ugly because i think we're so used to seeing white marble that seeing it painted it's like whoa that's also some of their color combinations like they were they did not um, feel a bright yellow. <laughs> yeah, like chartreuse and eggplant. Yes, they did not fit our yeah, modern it, aesthetic. Let's just yeah. say. Yeah, and but there's this. It I, was of its own period. Exactly, and so, and the statuary that we have is the idea of like the best of the like looking a certain way, and it's like a style. It doesn't reflect mm-hmm. reality. And I mean, and we, I think that these groups, neo-Nazis, the white supremacists, they forget there were African emperors. There was um, mixing of peoples all over the Greek and Roman world. Their issue with status had more to do with money and, um, you know, like ancestry than it did to race and color. And so Which, it's such a unique thing to think that um, this idea of like a racially pure Greek and Roman world did not exist. And the statues do not prove that it was like a racially pure world. And so yeah. by these groups and trying to embrace this idea of the Greek and Roman world as being somehow purer than others, clearly haven't been to Rome yeah. or Egypt or the Middle East or anything. It's like there's a lovely spectrum yeah. of people. <laughs> Yes, and also reminding people that yeah, ancestry important. is not race. That's a great exactly. point. Like, those are not, they're often conflated, but they are not the same. Thank you. That's a, yes. But yeah, but it's just co-opting a history. Again, like with the Confederacy um, and whatnot, it's trying to bolster mm-hmm. an ideology that's not true and an incorrect narrative and delusional, but it's using these um, histories to try to create a true narrative, even though yes. it's wrong. Yeah. So. And, well, and I mean, oh, Kirsten, go ahead. Okay. I was just going to tag on. So the classical narrative was used in uh, some of the legitimization of uh, westward movement mm-hmm. as well in the U.S., so if you take a look at a whole lot of older documents, and this is something that's it's come into vogue a few times over the last century as well, um, where people are, start to discuss the lost tribes of Israel, the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Romans have all been to the United States before. And this is where their small towns along the Mississippi have Egyptian names like 
Cairo and Thebes. The history of the people here couldn't have built these monumental structures that exist. So what do we know from what we have on a pedestal historically? Like, so looking back from that time period, looking back to classical history, because it was so, you know, the, the ideal um, at the time, or at least the, the false history was the ideal. And using a lot of those made up storylines to be like, nope, we were here first. People like white people were here first. They're the ones that built the mounds in the Midwest and the South. They're the ones that built uh, Casa Grande and various other pieces of larger architecture that we know that was not the case. Um, but it does get brought up periodically and was part of the legitimization for westward movement in the 19th century. Um, so it's been used not just today in white nationalist, uh, their propaganda, but it has been used in the past. So it's been around a long time. And that's something you guys mentioned too early on in the last segment is this yeah. stuff's not new. It's always been there. It's just how much it's being legitimized by our lovely head of state. And social media is not helping. No, it's not. No, social media is not helping it at all. Um, and I mean, the the Vikings and kind of Norse have also had a couple centuries of yes. um, their, their history co-opted. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting just quickly to note, like the term Viking actually was invented. It's like a modern English term or like modern in a historical standpoint um, that actually comes from the early 19th century. Mm. What it's kind of been used to mean is like people of a Scandinavian cultural identity from the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries. And when you think of Vikings, like everybody has this idea of like this tall blonde guy with like a horned helmet carrying like a battle axe and a sword. And like, it's bullshit. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, that, that isn't... That isn't actually true. First of all, like a foreign helmet is a terrible, terrible decision in a battle because you're basically giving your enemy handles to grab onto. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, in Old Norse, the the noun vikingr, right, which is V-I-K-I-N-G-R, actually um, translates to roughly like sea warrior. So it, it had absolutely nothing to do with an ethnic or a cultural identity. It was an activity. Right. And there were people who went a Viking, right? They got on ships and they went and they raided and they also traded and they settled. Um, they weren't just kind of raiding barbarians. This, the kind of combination of Viking as the word that talks about people from Scandinavia from the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries. And um, it's been kind of conflated with this, this warrior ideal has been around basically since people started talking about the Vikings in the 19th century and looking mm-hmm. at their archaeology. Um, we certainly see there are historical examples of uh, Wagner, right, who wrote operas, absolutely loves kind of the Norse Scandinavian history and created that into uh, it's called the Wolkish movement that V-O, the double dots over it, um, L-K-I-S-H. 
that is used as a historical narrative to German or to to bolster kind of a white German nation state. And that was a lot of what Hitler was pu- pulling from in World War II when he talks about this kind of Aryan master race of Scandinavians. Uh, and like, again, and I can't emphasize this enough, like, that's BS, right? The best description that I've ever heard of Vikings is as cultural chameleons, right? So the Vikings adapted that's to That's an excellent characterization. That's so cool. Right? And, and they went everywhere, right? They were in North America, Iceland, Greenland, hang out in the British Isles. They went down. We've got evidence of them um, in Northern Southern Europe. They, they sacked France and Germany a whole lot. Um, we also know that they went east into Russia. They went down into Constantinople, um, which is today Istanbul. Right? They had this massive geographical spread. And wherever they went and wherever they settled or traded, they adopted the local habits, language, and religion to Missouri. For example, if you were trading in a, in a Christian area, there were a lot of charters that forbade uh, Christian traders from trading with pagans. So pagans would go through what they call, uh, it's been characterized as baptism light, which is basically like, a, you're not such a bad pagan that we won't trade with you. Kind <laughs> <Your> situation. <laughs> Baptism like us, you know, and, and you have guys who, who would flip-flop back and forth between religions and um, and women as well that we know were participating in settling places and trading and participated in this economy. You mean women weren't just sitting by doing nothing? <gasps> I know. What? <laughs> Newsflash. <What>? Old news. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but it's it's also really, really interesting and important to note that the, the richest Viking Age grave that's ever been found Right, that isn't really up for the debate. It's called the Oseberg Ship Burial, and it was found in an area of Norway. And if you want to learn more about it, I did you know a short 10 12 minute um, description of that particular find, and it uh, can be found either on our website or on the ARC 365 on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Um, but suffice it to say, richest burial ever found one contained two women, <laughs> zero men, and uh, some recent research has been done and they actually found out that one woman has a genetic haplogroup that is primarily found in the middle east today right so we're looking at the richest scandinavian viking age burial ever found did not actually contain people from scandinavia (laughs) but they were important enough in that society that they had this incredibly rich burial that would have taken months to prepare not only that the individuals in that burial and the burial site itself uh, remained important for a very long time. So we know from some dendrochronology and colon analysis that the, the ship was buried in 834 AD. And we also know that it was broken into around the year 1000. So it's over 150 years later. And it was during kind of the Christianization period in Norway. There was also some political stuff going on. And that mound was important enough 150 years later that the kind of incoming power thought it was important to ritually break in and desecrate the mound to remove the power of those individuals and what they stood for. 150 years later. Okay, so here we have people who were, you know, by ancestry, not Scandinavian, uh, women, (laughs) super high status, and that status hung around for over a century. So kind of all this idea of an Aryan pure purity or anything it gets bullshit. Um, please stop co-opting this thing that I study 
and saying that, you know, the Norse had ideas of racial or cultural purity. They didn't, right? They created hybrid identities everywhere they went. People who settled in Normandy, people who settled in the British Isles, it can actually be difficult to find Viking Age and Norse or typical Norse archaeology in those areas because they assimilated into those cultures so quickly and so well that it's hard to differentiate them from one another, right? And people who went east may have started using the language of those who were on the steps or wearing the clothing. That's not to say they ever completely like abandoned their Scandinavian identity. Oftentimes they held on to like a nominal idea of a Scandinavian identity, often through like their name or something, because there was trade benefit, because the Scandinavians were everywhere. So if you could go somewhere and say, oh yes, I'm Scandinavian, you're Scandinavian, we were everywhere. Let's do trade, right? all about that money, money, money. So, so much more flexibility than you could possibly yeah. imagine. And it's super important. But as I'm sitting here ranting about the fact that the the far right kind of has um, tried to create their own narrative and weaponize, right, this history that like, I, I happen to love it, right? I'm getting a PhD and I'm studying Vikings because I think it's fascinating. Um, and you're fucking the thing that I care about. Stuff. But I think it's important that we also talk about the fact that the weaponization, the co-opting of these historical narratives, right, is not about historical accuracy. It's about creating a narrative, creating a story that other people can hear and yeah. maybe relate to, you Let's know, or say, thing. I think similarly, or, you know, something that one can create a group identity around, even if that group identity is based on lies. And it's based on lies. Very angry about this. Fair enough. I mean, because it's based, like you said, it's based on a lie, but it gives it, um, like, the idea enough backing that it makes people maybe not think twice about what they're reading or what they're thinking. Because if you're using enough symbol, it's like the Salutrian hypothesis. Mm-hmm. If you got enough research, background data, um, you know, scientific sounding uh, verbiage, it may sound legitimate. And that's horrifying that they could use something like the greek roman history norse history anything to try to sound legitimate or at least bring people in enough that who may not question otherwise and go oh really the vikings were racially pure and they thought x y and z interesting i like vikings tell me more yeah yeah even though I mean, people have been doing that forever. Governments have been been doing that, like relating yourself to the past. I mean, hell, the, the Vikings did it. When the Vikings moved to Iceland and you had all of this land that you didn't have centuries worth of oral tradition of a certain family owning a bit of land, they made a point of putting stones up and linking themselves to the founders of Iceland to justify the fact that they had whatever land they had and, you know, to justify their claim. Right? People like tying themselves to the past to give their ideas legitimacy, even if that yeah. past isn't actually real. And that's really what we're seeing with the far right is they're trying to create an alternative past to, to legitimize their, uh, their viewpoint, yeah, their, their narrative. And as someone who studies the hist- history and the past and archaeology, like hands off. It pisses me off. 
Yeah, and people, um, uh, white supremacists on their uh, web pages have put um, Lord of the Rings as like reading for <laughs> for legitimizing their beliefs. And it's like, no, one, Jared Tolkien yeah. was not a white supremacist. Two, you just really like medieval history. And three, it's a fantasy novel. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. Yeah. Sauron, not real. Well, and even like known prominent excuse me authors that used the mythologies of the past have spoken out against uh co-opting for political purposes uh, specifically white supremacy uh J.R. Tolkien was livid about the use of viking and norse heritage in in these narratives and he's like I use it fictionally. He's a, you know, like he's very much, I love this era. I love the stories. I'm using it in my writing, but it's fiction. It's the idea that you're taking it and mal- like making it something it's not for political purposes and trying to convince people that it's real. Right. Anyways, um, as we move into the third segment, we're going to talk about some of what we can do as historians and archaeologists, as well as concerned citizens um, and what anyone could do to combat the issues surrounding this because we want to end on a positive note instead of me just ranting about Vikings. During the break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology Patreon account? And there you can learn how to support the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog and check out some of the blog posts we've been posting on our blog. You can see the different ways to become a patron of the Women in Archaeology, from $2 to $5 to $10, or even just showing your support and interest is always great. Thank you very much for listening, and hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we have been discussing how the uh, all- alt-right, far-right, white supremacy movement has been trying to co-opt and utilize both recent and further back historical events for their own gain. And we've also talked about the fact that they're telling uh, narratives of lies. (laughs) Their stories don't actually reflect the truth. But um, we're going to finish this segment out by talking about some of the possible solutions and some of the things that archaeologists, historians, and the general public can do to have a positive impact and hopefully try and stop the spread of these very dangerous ideologies. I can't remember, Emily or Kirsten, which one, but one of you mentioned at the beginning talking about uh, LARPing. Sorry if we, because like LARPing is fun, rent fairs are fun. Yeah. Start off there. Yeah. We all love going to those events. We all, I mean, I don't know if everybody does, but I think they're a lot of fun. <laughs> the Renaissance fairs get to go drink some meat and a turkey le- eat a turkey leg and right, beautiful know. horses doing jousting. Exactly, play with costumes and, and historical dress, and we yeah, can totally. Exactly. Yes, archaeologists and historians alike like to nerd out on whatever they're doing, just like anyone else. Exactly. Are they <laughs> historically accurate? 
Not really. No. Are they fun? <laughs> yes. And the same goes for LARPing. That's live action role playing, if you're not familiar with the term. And I mean, it's people with like foam swords and shields and, and whatnot. The worrying thing about this is like the, the folks who um, had the protest in Charlottesville were LARPers or a few of them were LARPers. And they um, were saying like you like using shields as battering rams to hit people with. Um, they were trying to use techniques they were learning in LARPing to harm other people, essentially. And it's it, it's a unique situation in where a lot of these LARPing communities are ha- seeing a rise of white supremacy within those groups and that they are difficult to recognize because they may be using symbols that maybe other white supremacists would recognize, but they're older medieval symbols that are now being co-opted as a signal that they are part of this group. And so you may have these groups of people that are using LARPing in a way to try to again, legitimize their beliefs and say, like, look at this cool medieval world. I am part of it. It's all um, white and whatnot. And then they are using it also to harm others. Mm-hmm. But, um, and it, and from one of the articles we're reading, it's called the alt-right is taking over Renaissance fairs that a lot of people are having difficulty recognizing the symbology until much later. But mm-hmm. there are those who may have recognized and said, hey, whatever, they'll believe what they believe. And in terms of, you know, it's not comfortable confronting people. We all know that. But if you've got a group of people with dangerous beliefs and doing dangerous activities, I would not want them part of my community. And so Mm. I think it's important if you are a LARPer and you have groups of white supremacists trying to come in and LARP with you, say no. Have don't have them be part of your group. I don't know how easy that would be, but I think it's important to try to learn the symbols mm-hmm. that uh, may be on people's shields, swords, what have you, so that you can recognize it and say, no, I do not want to be part of that group anymore. Like I said, I don't know how easy that would be, but I think part yeah. of a, bi- a big part of this would just being able to recognize what yeah. we're seeing and saying, I don't want to be a part of that. Well, part of the challenge with that um, and it's a good idea, I think, to get familiar with the symbols that are being used as sort of call signs for, hey, you know, what's up? We're we're doing our white thing or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. And you're like, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that a lot of these communities? So this gets back to the idea of glorifying the past and fantasy doing it, just the past being a fantastical, amazing place, which is not so much the truth. Um, and typically people who are involved in those communities are white. That's just because the past is glorified towards that socioeconomic group, upper class, white. I mean, if you think about what's in the history books, especially looking at Ren groups, what you see are people that are dressing up as not peasants usually, unless you're in the proper like Ren fair thing, then you have to go through the hierarchy from what I've heard. But you don't have people dressing up to be anything other than royalty. That is the goal, right? And so it can be, I think, difficult to weed out. And one of the reasons why these groups are being in these uh, hobbies are being co-opted is because it's predominantly yeah. white. And that's more or less, I think, by default of just history and the communities that they come out of um, aren't necessarily white supremacist, but, you know, 
white farming communities in the Midwest and such. But I think it is also important to note that when when you get, I mean, one of the reasons I like recognizing these symbols and also saying like, hey, no, I don't want to be part of this. You're not welcome here is because when you have white supremacists and people in the far right, you can come in and say, oh, but like, I'm not just a white supremacist. I like doing X, Y, and Z, right? I'm not even going to like try and pick out any particular hobby, right? Yeah. Whatever it is. I don't care whether it's LARPing dogs or skydiving or I don't know that any of have any relation, but <laughs> picking out random things. I, I don't care what it is. When you allow them to be something more than a white supremacist, it, it normalizes them. It, like, yeah. it adds another dimension to them. And I think it's just super important to be like, no, like this is antisocial behavior and we don't want to be a part of it. And this is not the place well, for it. Not that there's any place for it. Yeah. It's like extra. Right. It, yeah. We don't want well, that but here. It, it needs to and become it's, something it's, that's socially exactly. unacceptable. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, because because laws aren't going to change anything. It might just, you know, create a martyr or make someone pissed. Yeah. But, the state or the man is trying to take away my right to say whatever, you know, you do need like a culturalist social change and acknowledgement. Yeah. This is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And in uh, no way are we saying it would be easy. Cause I mean, if no, God, no. even yeah. scholars are struggling with this. And so it's yeah. hard to imagine like um, just a LARPing community saying, you know what? The middle ages were multiracial, multi-faith, multicultural. If that's a struggle um, on its own, well, medieval scholars are even struggling within their own Mm -hmm. field to try to combat these issues because there's that fear of, well, if I start talking about race, if I start talking about politics, well, then I'm not really being part of my field. I'm getting into something that's not part of my field, even though, as we've said before, like archaeology, it's political. So is a lot of history. So, yeah. Well, and it doesn't help that a lot of academia is white still yes so that's where people get nervous i think and (laughs) not to excuse it it's also worth noting no it's also worth noting that um there's a a good book it's called the extreme gone mainstream Hmm. that is talking specifically about how some of these extreme ideas have managed to permeate into more mainstream conversations and and ideologies and one of the things that that author notes is that trends change quickly, right? Yeah. And by the time someone outside of that insular group has figured out what their trends are, it's no longer cool and they've probably moved on. Um, yep. So it, it is a game of catch up, um, which is which is unfortunate. And, you know, it's not necessarily a fun thing to think about or talk about or research so that you know what signs and symbols to, to work for. But it's also really important to do that um, one of the, the articles that we read for this week that was called What to Do About Hitler's Berghoff Museum Challenges Far-Right mm-hmm. Interest, which is there, there is a museum called the Documentation Oversalzburg, sorry, I don't speak German, which was opened, it's about 300 meters from the Berghoff site, which is uh, one of the places where Hitler lives during uh, his time in power. But it is about 300 meters from, from the actual building that no longer exists. And over the last several years, they've noticed there's been an increase of um, poach tours. They're showing up far-right people who are defacing information signs. They're carving swastikas into trees. They're leaving lit candles on the perimeter wall that make up you know, some of the, of the site. The, 
Yeah, yeah of, of the site of Hitler's. Of the site, not the museum. And the um, one of the museum's employees has yeah. kind of stated that like we, they as a museum can't turn a, turn a blind eye. And the a quote from him is, quote, if you do nothing to an area, they can do what they want. If you say, here lived Hitler, that is a problem. That's that's not enough. You are allowing them to write their own story, to write their own narrative, um, to decide what it is rather than than saying, no, it, yeah, it's hard to talk about this. It's hard to, to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it needs to be done and we need to do it right because if we don't, somebody else is going to. But it needs to be and, done. You know. So I think that they're actually doing a, an expansion project, which is due to yeah. be done in, in like yeah. 2020. And that's that's been delayed somewhat because like they found someone that made bombs when they started digging for the site. And that slows things down, understandably. But having these difficult conversations is just super, super important because yeah. if we don't, someone else will. And shift the narrative into something significantly more dangerous. Right. Well, and as much as I'm glad that I mean, we're having this conversation here and yeah. uh, this is a public platform, definitely, and is accessible to anyone, which is great. And as much as I've heard, some scholars have debates among themselves at conferences. There have been some some debates that happen in, in journals. It, it does have to reach beyond academia. You know, academia, we've talked about, is not necessarily the most accessible location in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we've also talked about the fact that the far right doesn't really care about facts. So a bunch of historians saying this isn't true isn't going to change their mind. No. No. Yeah. And I mean, that's where it's nice. Um, we're going to be linking a bunch, of, as mentioned before, we're going to be linking a bunch of the, the stories. So the research that has been done on this, um, and some of them are very well uh, referenced, amazingly, um, which is pretty nice for, for news stories. Um, so those, the Smithsonian one in particular um, is a pretty good article. So there are facts out there if people are curious and want to know, um, but it can be difficult to parse it out. And some of it's, you know, remembering to look at the source mm-hmm. of the information, if it's real, it just because they have a link doesn't mean that it's a thing. Like you have to follow it. I followed a few this is somewhat of a tangent, but it's an example of how people who aren't versed in research necessarily can easily get pulled off into a white nationalist trail. Uh, so my daughter was doing research, I don't remember the topic, um, on something that had sort of a, a conservative bent to it. And um, because she likes playing devil's advocate, you know, as it goes. Um, so... so she's following this research and she's like, well, it's cited. And I'm like, okay, well, let's follow the citation and see what that actually says. It was a real journal article, but it was not anything. It was not about what the reference was. So they, someone had just picked a legitimate article and linked it without actually looking at the topic. So it's like the title sounded vaguely applicable and it was not the same research so it was a a good lesson in following citations and it can be laborious but if it's something that you're really interested or intrigued about or have questions about it's definitely worth doing additional research and most um Mm -hmm. researchers 
say like librarians are a really good resource uh, to look up legitimate yeah. sources for this kind of stuff too. And they can help out. That's what they're there for, for those communities that still have libraries. Yeah. I think with a lot of that, it's just, it's promoting questions, promote questioning. Yes. Um, one thing I always tell my students, question everything, question what I say, tell me, yeah. like, ask me where am I getting my information? Where it's like, really follow the trail. Cause I, I was uh, looking up articles for today's episode and it went down some interesting wormholes where it's like, is this a real website? Is this going to be what I think it's about? And like, and I would click on them and I'd be yeah. like, it's actually the reverse. It's like this site um, yeah. proves the white supremacy of some kind of culture and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, nope, that's not what I was looking for. But I mean, it's out there and it looks legitimate. And that's yeah. deeply concerning. It's scary. Yeah. I mean, the other important thing about asking questions is that, that it's, it's not just how legitimate is this because that is important, mm -hmm. but it's encouraging people to have conversations and as we said having yeah. conversations even if they're difficult conversations is super super important in terms of controlling the narrative and, and making sure that people are getting the right information and keeping people from being mm -hmm. you know led astray i mean we hear these shootings and they talk to friends and family members and a lot of times oh well, i could never imagine this person would do that. And I can't. And it's okay if you're only ever talking about the weather and who won the sports game on Saturday night. You know, you're not, you're not going to mm -hmm. necessarily figure yeah. out or hear about those warning signs. Yeah. Thank you. Those warning signs. Yeah. And then in an academia too, I think there just needs to be a push to not be afraid to talk about these things. Because, I mean, as we saw at the Society for American Archaeology Conference, nobody wanted to talk, really actually talk about our issues of sexual harassment in the field. No, no one in power wanted to That's talk about it. That's a very good it. point. Lots of other people wanted to talk. Yeah, everyone else wanted. Okay, thank yes. you for correcting that. Yes, the people in power, and I think this is true for a lot of conferences, like if the um, issue at other medieval conferences, if there's like a fear to really confront these issues, well, how can we expect people outside of the field to confront these issues? Yeah. Well, and there's this um, mindset, too, that if you talk about it, you're legitimizing it. Mm. And I've heard that argument on a number of levels between the ancient aliens to white supremacy. Um, then it's but ignoring it is not going to make it better. It's not going to go away. Yeah, it's not going to go away. And and you're yeah you're disengaging. And that gets back to what Chelsea was uh, quoting from the article is if you if there's some if you don't do something there you know it's you're just letting something someone else make that the, that narrative um doing nothing is siding with the oppressor yes there we go mm -hmm. doing nothing is siding with the oppressor so this doesn't you know you i think as people who have an interest but also are knowledgeable about these things it's part of our responsibility mm -hmm. to kind of step up um, and help inform and guide the public when they have questions um, and when they don't have questions. Mm -hmm. so. Although to note, and I can, and we're not saying this isn't that it's not hard because um, the uh, scholar difficult. who uh, talked about how ancient sculpture had color, 
received death threats from the alt-right because, you know, it's promoting something that they did not want put out there. That, you know, sculptures were not white. They had color. And so in no way, shape, or form are we saying it's easy, but it is important. There was a woman who wrote a piece recently. I think it was for for time. I'll see if I can hunt up the citation. But yeah, you know, death threats, um, you know, threats of rape because... She called out what white nationalists were doing and, and why it was problematic. Um, so yeah, it's it's not easy, um, mm-hmm. and it can be scary. And I encourage everyone to please, you know, be safe and take care of yourselves as well. Um, that that's important. But if you have the the ability, say hey, no, you should. Yeah, no one wants to live in 1940 again. No, God, no. no. I don't know why anybody would. I mean, I, it's yeah. one of those funny things, again, like looking back in the past. It's like, no, I, I really enjoy my phone. No. I enjoy having a microwave. I mean, let me stress 1940. Oh, God, no. But, no, yeah. Why? So some things that people can do if they feel like reaching out or doing public public outreach, public education, or writing articles on the interwebs and aren't wanting those that sort of negative feedback, um, some things that everyone can do would be to see what kind of narratives are occurring in your local historical societies and mm-hmm. your um, where the funding is going for your heritage programs mm-hmm. in your state and local communities and contacting those representatives because they're always good to hear from you. And if the only people they're hearing from are the people with an alt-right agenda, that's what they're going to play to because that's what they think mm-hmm. are their constituents that are speaking out to them. So you have a voice. Um, and again, we've mentioned on so many episodes at this point, like reaching out to your representatives of state, local, and um, national representation is important and does have an impact. Um, So every little voice helps. Uh, So I encourage people to, especially if you feel like it may be unsafe in your community to speak out publicly, uh, doing something like this can be a good way to have a good impact uh, without um, feeling like you're putting yourself in an unsafe position. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Kirsten. That's a good call to action. Um, and I think on, yeah, on that, we are approaching actually past the end of our segment mark. So unless anyone has any uh, desperate last thoughts they want to get off their chest. No, yeah, I, I, had a, much okay. I had a good rant. <laughs> this was cathartic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to our <laughs> Yes. Our Rant over. Yay. Yes. As, as always, thank yes. you for listening. Um we do this to hang out and talk with each other, but we also do this to our listeners we love. Oh, other people are listening? What? <laughs> what? Um you can always reach us yeah. on Twitter or at Arkies or email us at uh, womeninarchaeology at gmail.com and until next time we hope you have a good day hooray and thanks for being on the ladies thank you for having us (laughs) yes thank you